All right, if you would take your Bibles and open them up to Daniel 4, and I'm going to ask Jeremy and Jay to come stand up behind me. I'll be talking just for a little bit. Shall I sit? You should sit right behind me there, brother. I will call him. And and Jay, you can sit two seats from him. (laughs) I don't want you guys disturbing everybody. All right, Daniel chapter 4. We are into a new chapter, and we're going to spend couple weeks in this chapter, but this is how we're going to begin. Might be a little different, but we all know a werewolf, the man wolf. We know we've heard stories and legends of werewolves, and we know that there are people that change into a wolf as the stories and tales go, right? Uh, They originated and they abounded in England and in Europe. Uh, Their tales have grown um, into movies and into books and to all kinds of frightful fantasy that we love or sometimes love to listen to and tell. Well, in the tales of werewolves, they come out at night and they usually come out under the full uh, moon conditions. Uh, The person who turns into a werewolf could turn into a werewolf under these following conditions. Uh, A magic ointment could be rubbed on them, which generates the werewolf capabilities. Uh, They could turn into a werewolf by coming in contact with uh, wolf skin or a pelt and coming in contact with them, and that could generate the realities. Uh, Also, you could drink water from a wolf's uh, footprint that's left in the mud. If you cupped water and drank it out of that, that could bring on this wolf-like capabilities. Uh, As well as someone else could exercise you that doesn't like you, they could exercise some sort of power over you and turn you into a werewolf. It's those kind of friends you do not want to have. For those of you that are traveling in Europe, I have some safety tips for you if you're in Europe. And I know Melinda, where are you? Is she here? She's not here right at the moment. But her husband is in Europe with the son, Zach. So maybe you could call them and give them some tips here. If you see a werewolf, you can bring them back to the person by doing this. If you are to name the werewolf's real name. So as he's growling and snarling and coming at you, Jack! Bob, Andy, and it's too late. You got probably three tries. You better be very good at the names. The other thing you can do is you can hit the werewolf three times on the forehead. So you got to get kind of close enough to pop three times, and supposedly that turns them back into a person as well. And the last thing is you make the sign of the cross. Now, this next part I'm about to say is true. The European werewolf legend and tales are based on a rare and documented mental illness. It's called lycanthropy. It's a rare form of monomania. I think I'm pronouncing that correctly. And what happens here, it's a rare condition uh, in a mental imbalance that affects specifically one area. So it's a mental imbalance that hits a particular area. It's not a pervasive area. The particular area it hits is that the person actually imagines that they're a wolf. And it's that imbalance that led to the legends. There's also another form of monomania called bianthropy. And this is a form in which the person specifically imagines themselves to be a bull or an ox or a cow. Right now. We all know that imagining yourself to be a werewolf and imagining yourself to be a bull or an ox or a cow is not a normal thing. I mean, words like imbalance, 
um, mentally ill, uh, insanity come to mind, don't they? All right, I want you to turn to verse 16 in chapter 4. Just let's read this together. Let his mind be changed from a man's and let a beast's mind be given to him. And then let seven periods of time pass over him. Let's go to verse 31 through 33. While the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven. O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you. And you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, and you shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and seven periods of time shall pass over you until... Until you know that the Most High rules over the kingdom of men and gives to it to whom he will. Now, immediately this word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men and he ate grass like an ox. And his body was wet with dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as eagle's feathers and his nails like bird's claws. Now, we all know that's not normal. Right. But what about verse 30? Is that normal? Let's go back to verse 30. And the king answered and said, Is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power, as the royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? Is that normal? Is that sane? Is that mentally balanced? Is that mentally and heart healthy? Is it? I mean, isn't Nebuchadnezzar what most commentators or one commentator put it? Isn't Nebuchadnezzar like the the ideal or the model success story? I mean, let's think about this guy. You know, he grew up when, when the Assyrians were ravaging the known world. And the Assyrians were harsh and brutal in the way that they would conquer people. Their God was a God of war. So when they worshiped, it meant war. They used to take their captives and hook ring them in the nose to each other and drag them when they would deport them. I mean, a brutal, barbaric, harsh, cold realities. And that's when Nebuchadnezzar grew up seeing as his people were dragged by the nose. And you know, as a little guy, And growing up into a bigger guy, how many vows did he make? I will get them. This is going to stop, right? So he was probably an overachiever, probably since his youth. He was probably smarter and swifter and shrewder and stronger and more fearless than all his contemporaries. I mean, he was the captain of the chariot team. Before there was the Greeks and Greco-Roman wrestling, he won them all. He was strategic. He was peerless in the study of war. He was a gifted and charismatic and natural leader. I mean, he rose easily through the ranks of power in Babylon. He instinctively drew the masses to himself. All he had to do was stand somewhere and people gravitated to him. And as he shared his vision of the world and his vision of overcoming Assyria, the the youths and the young men just began to flock to them. And even the old were listening to him. Right. He courageously led a brilliant military campaign against Assyria. 
His shock and awe shook the world, and his shock and awe made everyone else cower in fear when he came marching through. Two of the seven wonders of the ancient world Nebuchadnezzar built in Babylon. What were they? We have the hanging gardens, we have the city walls. The city walls that he built around Babylon could take a four-horse chariot on the top of the wall and could turn around and go in the opposite direction. So that's how big these walls were. He was a master architect, an extremely gifted builder. Would doctors, would Hollywood, would politicians, would megachurch pastors, would the media, would you and me, would we say, or will we diagnose Nebuchadnezzar as being insane in verse 30? As he walked on his palace and he looked at Babylon and he said, look what I've built. Maybe he's thinking to himself, my vow is complete. Would you say he's mentally ill? Would you say he's insane in that moment? You know what's absolutely incredible? As Daniel 4 sees no difference between verse 33 and verse 30. Daniel 4 sees no difference between Nebuchadnezzar thinking he's an ox and eating grass and then snapshotting over to when he says, look what I've done by the work of my hands for the glory of my majesty. The Bible in Daniel 4 sees no difference between those two verses. In other words, in Daniel 4, there's no difference between a boast and a beast. There's no difference between sin and insanity. No difference at all. Daniel 4 takes all of us, and this is what's so brilliant about this passage. You know, there's some passages that you read and you can, you can distance yourself to the events and to the people and to the characters and to the places and the things that are happening on the page. You can kind of keep a nice Heisman distance between you and the passage and just keep it at bay. But there are other passages that just won't allow you to do that. Other passages, they, they kind of begin to tell you a story. And they, they work their way in such a way that they actually cause you to let your guard down. And while you're letting your guard down, the passage reaches and says, Now I got you. No Heisman anymore. And when you get to this passage, it's one of those kind of passages. It takes you to the top floor, the floor that's reserved for the worst cases of the mentally ill. I mean, we've got to be a little more PC, a mental health hospital. It takes you to the top floor of an insane asylum, basically. And we get off on the elevator and we're walking down the top floor, down the hallway to the last room that's down there. And we're freaked out by all the sights and sounds that we're hearing on our way down there. Most of us are just trying to keep our eyes straight or head down and look at the, how many cracks are in this floor as we're walking down and don't want to hear what we're hearing, don't want to see what we're seeing as we walk down this floor. We get to the last door on the left. We look at it. We swallow deeply. We take a deep breath and we push open the door and we finally step inside. And when we step and walk into the room, it's empty. Thank God, we all say inflexibly. But then curiosity gets the best of you, right? So you go over to the bed, 
and you grab the doctor's chart at the end of the bed. And you flip over to the top of the page and you're stunned. And you start blinking like maybe it'll go away. Because you see your name at the top of the chart. It's your room. It's my room. That's what Daniel 4 does. Now, I've I've debated on how to do this. This is a long chapter. And I thought, well, maybe I could read a little bit, tell you a little bit, read it. I thought, well, that's not going to work. So I thought, well, okay, maybe I'll read Nebuchadnezzar's dream, tell you about the interpretation, and then finish up with the third scene. No, no, that doesn't work. So I couldn't do anything but say, we got to read it. So we're going to read this whole chapter, but I've got some relief for us. We're going to have three readers reading this particular chapter. So if you get tired, feel free to take a seat. But we're going to read this and read this in light of it taking you to the top floor into the room. All right. The first reader will be Jeremy, and he's going to read 1 through 18. Jay will read 19 through 27, and then I will finish it up. If I get tired, can I sit down? No, you may not. (laughs) Okay, here we go. Please stand for the reading of God's Word. Daniel chapter 4, 1 through 18. King Nebuchadnezzar, to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. It has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and his dominion endures from generation to generation. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and prospering in my palace. I saw a dream that made me afraid. As I lay in bed, the fancies and the wisdoms of my head alarmed me. So I made a decree that all the wise men of Babylon should be brought before me, that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. Then the magicians, the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers came in, and I told them to dream, but they could not make known to me its interpretation. At last Daniel came in before me, he who was named Belteshazzar after the name of my God, and in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. And I told him the dream, saying, O Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, because I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you and that no mystery is too difficult for you. Tell me the visions of my dream that I saw and their interpretation. The visions of my head as I lay in bed were these. I saw and behold a tree in the midst of the earth and its height was great. The tree grew and became strong and its top reached to heaven. And it was visible to the end of the whole earth. Its leaves were beautiful and its fruit abundant and in it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it and the birds of the heavens lived in its branches and all flesh was fed from it. I saw in the visions of my head as I lay in bed and behold, a watcher, a holy one came down from heaven. He proclaimed aloud and said thus, chop down the tree and lop off its branches Strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the beasts flee from under it and the birds from its branches. But leave the stump of its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze, amid the tender grass of the field. Let him be wet with the dew of heaven. 
Let his portion be with the beasts in the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed from a man's and let a beast's mind be given to him. And let seven periods of time pass over him. The sentence is by the decree of the watchers. The decision by the word of the holy ones to the end that the living may know that the most high rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets it over the lowliest of men. This dream I, King Nebuchadnezzar, saw, and you, O Belteshazzar, tell me the interpretation, because all the wise men of my kingdom are not able to make known to me the interpretation, but you are able, for the spirit of the holy gods is in you. Then Daniel, whose name was Belshazzar, was dismayed for a while, and his thoughts alarmed him. The king answered and said, Belshazzar, let not the dream or the interpretation alarm you. Belshazzar answered and said, My Lord, may the dream be for those who hate you and its interpretation for your enemies. The tree you saw, which grew and became strong so that its top reached to heaven, and it was visible to the end of the whole earth, whose leaves were beautiful and its fruit abundant and in, and in which was food for all under which beasts of the field found shade, and in whose branches the birds of the heavens lived. It is you, O king, who have grown and become strong. Your greatness has grown and reaches to heaven, and your dominion to the ends of the earth. And because the king saw a watcher, a holy one, coming down from heaven and saying, Chop down the tree and destroy it, but leave the stump of its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze in the tender grass of the field, and let him be wet with the dew of heaven, and let his portion be with the beasts of the field, till seven periods of time pass over him. This is the interpretation, O king. It is a decree of the Most High, which has come upon my lord the king, that you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, you shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and you shall be wet with the dew of heaven, and seven periods of time shall pass over you, till you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. And as it was commanded to leave the stump of the roots of the tree, your kingdom shall be confirmed for you from the time that you know that heaven rules. Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you, Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed, that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. So all this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of 12 months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. And the king answered and said, Is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power is a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty. While the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven. O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you, and you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. And you shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Now immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven, till his hair grew as long as eagles' feathers, and his nails were like birds' claws. 
At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven and my reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And he does according to his will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And no one can say to him or say to his hand, what have you done? Now, at the same time, my reason returned to me and for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and my splendor will return to me. My counselors and my lords, they sought me and I was established in my kingdom and still more greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, for all his works are right, all his ways are just, and those who walk in pride he is able to humble. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. Let's ask God's blessing on this word. Lord, we do ask your blessing. We, we ask it with full confidence because you've already done the hard work. You've already given up your own son and did not spare him, but gave him up to death. Gave him up to adding humanity. Gave him up to living under the law. Gave him up to a punishing, substitutionary death. And so, Lord, what we ask for now is is small. It's seemingly, in light of that, inconsequential. But, oh Lord, it's so desperately needed. Would you come and visit us now and draw near to us and in the process give us sanity? We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, what is sanity? What is normal? What's normality? What's normal? What's sane? What's, what's thinking and living healthily? What's having mental health? What's having heart health? What does normal humanness look like? If you say that person is human and that person is fully alive, full expression of their humanity... What does that look like? What is that? How do you mark and measure saneness, sanity, health, mentally, in your heart and in your life and in your hands? Well, Daniel 4 answers this question in the reverse by picturing insanity. So the question is, what is normal? What is sanity? But the answer is, here's what it's not. This is what insanity looks like, so that you see what normal sanity looks like. Do you see how the text is doing this? So what we're going to do is we're going to look at three imbalances in the human mind and in the human heart that drive us to insanity. And all the while, we're going to see what looks like the imbalances within us that drive us to insanity, the insanity of sin, to see what real sane living looks like, what sanity looks like, what health looks like, what being a normal Christian looks like. All right, that's our plan. Before we do that, though, we've got to do periodically when we're in the Old Testament, we have to 
rearrange ourselves to how we read and think about and interpret and teach and apply the Old Testament. We need these little reminders when we get into the Old Testament or we get into the Bible. How do you read this stuff? I mean, how do you begin to even look at Nebuchadnezzar? What do you make of an account like this? I mean, you're me, Monday morning, you just get done preaching, you open it up, Daniel 4. You start reading it and you're like, whew, you know, what do I do with this? What do you do with it? You're going through your family devotionals, you're going through your private devotionals, you go through a church where they have a liturgical reading of the scriptures, and you hear the Old Testament. And you read the Old Testament stories. What do you do with them? How do you read them? Is there a right way to read them? Or is it everyone does right what's right in their own eyes? Everyone applies what's right in their own eyes. How do we do this? So periodically, I like to kind of pull back a little bit when we get to passages like this that seem to be a little more obvious in the, in the difficulty or the knot they seem to be in that you need to untie to get it. How do you read this? What's the meaning of it? How do you interpret it? And then how does it apply to us? So what we're going to do today is we're going to look at how you read the Old Testament again. And then we're going to pick up in the next couple of weeks the specific imbalances in this text that drive us to an insanity. And in the process, as that's happening, see what true sanity or health looks like. All right. All right. Here we go. I got to warn you about what I'm going to say, too. I need to do this as well. The popular thought is what I'm about to say you can't handle. It's pretty straightforward, isn't it? Popular thought in the seminaries, popular thought in pastor books, popular thought in preaching books, popular thought in how you do church today, popular thought in what congregations should expect and what congregations should do, say that I shouldn't be doing what I'm about to do. In other words, popular thought says you can't handle biblical thought at a deeper level. That if I'm to have an impact, what I'm to do is to give you three-minute, bite-sized thoughts from the Scripture. But only three minutes. Pull them out three minutes and coat them with all kinds of candy. And then help you open your mouth and then stick it in your mouth. That's basically what I'm told I'm supposed to do. Take three minutes of hard thought but code it in all kinds of anecdotes and personal stories. And, and the more authentic you can be in telling stories about your own life, the better, because it's, it's conversational and it's communicative and it's bonding and we, and we connect. And that's how we do church. So what is about to be said here uh, is thoughtful. It's reflective. You got to think hard. So when I go to Psalm 111, which I read this morning, verse 2, notice what it says. It says, great are the works of the Lord. And notice this next word, studied. Great are the works of the Lord, studied by all who get intellectual degrees, studied by all who 
pursue masters in theology, studied by all who delight in them. According to the Bible, there's a serious connection and link between your joy, your delight, your heart expansive realities in the scriptures and thinking hard over them. And I think, I think we're so shallow and we're so small and we're so puff-like because we don't think hard anymore in the church and on the scriptures. Paul says, Timothy, what I'm about to say, think hard about it. And as you think, the Lord will give you understanding. Delight. Joy, right? Okay, I'm off. No, I'm not. I'm here at my pulpit. Number one, Daniel 4 is not about mental illness. Now we're into the hard thinking. Daniel 4 is not about mental illness. So you don't psychoanalyze Nebuchadnezzar. You don't psychoanalyze yourself in this passage. You don't psychoanalyze others who struggle with mental illness. You don't. That's not the point of the passage. It's not calling us to psychoanalyze what's taking place in here. So you don't try to figure out what form of mental illness Nebuchadnezzar had. Even though I kind of began with a little tantalizing where werewolf legends came from, right? Lycanthropy. Now, maybe that's true, but that's not the point of the text. One author said it this way. They said, the account of Nebuchadnezzar is not intended to give you insight into Nebuchadnezzar's self-awareness or his repressed feelings, but it's to give you an account of what God thought of him. See the difference? So don't make a connection also between mental illness and God's direct judgment on somebody. In other words, don't do what the disciples did. Remember when the person was born blind and they went up to Jesus and they said, okay, Jesus, who sinned, him or his parents? And what we need to not do when we come to Nebuchadnezzar or when we come to someone who struggles with mental illness, whether it's ourselves or someone else, is not make direct connections between God's judgment and their personal sin or their personal suffering. In other words, this is not a call to say who sinned, them or their parents. Now, obviously, in one grand step back, sin is the cause of all human suffering and interpersonal problems and deep, deep psychosis. Because sin in the world, when it came in, it turned the world upside down, stained and infected everything from corrupting individuals to corrupting nature itself to corrupting creation. It did all kinds of corruptive work. So in one sense, yes, yes, there is ultimately sin's responsible. But we're not called in this passage to make a direct beeline and take that personal problem, link it to the judgment of God and say, ah, you sinned in a certain way and that's why this has happened. That's not what this passage is calling us to do. Also, don't read your experience into Nebuchadnezzar's experience. In other words, you start thinking things like, you know, I'm prideful at times. I'm losing some short-term memory too, I noticed. My nails are growing longer and quicker recently. <laughs> I'm starting to like grass. God's judging me, right? 
And don't do this. If I get rid of my pride and look to heaven, God will deliver me in my depression. If I get rid of that sin and have enough faith and look and trust in the Lord, He'll take away my bipolar tendencies. He'll fix me. Don't read your experience into Nebuchadnezzar's experience. So the first thing Daniel 4 is not about is mental illness. The second thing Daniel 4 is not about primarily you and me. Okay? It's not primarily about you and me. And this is where I think because we've read the Scriptures in such a way that we always make ourselves the focal point and the center point that we do go more insane. Because we're always looking at ourselves. It's almost like this. One guy, this, this real gifted English instructor of preachers, he used to come in and he came into town in Dallas one day and I went and spent some time listening to what he was doing and he says, you know, when you're looking at the text, it's kind of like this. It's not about you, but it's about you. And what did he mean by that? He said, well... You read about someone else, and it becomes about you. As you get lost in the world there, that's when that world gets you. So primarily what we need to do is see that the passage, the Old Testament, the scriptures are not primarily about us. So what are they about? What I'm saying is it's a very serious error today to go from the text... To you. To go from the text immediately to you. Now, I'm not saying don't go to you. I'm not saying that. So please hear me. I'm not saying, oh, yeah, you guys, you reform people. No application. You know, you never give a how to. It's always about Jesus. Right. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying we'll get to you. The text gets to you, but it doesn't get to you directly. What I'm saying is this. The text, don't take a text in the Old Testament. Now we're getting to the thinking hard part, so stay with me. Don't take a text and immediately go to you. For instance, don't go to Nebuchadnezzar and immediately go to you. Associate and ex- your experiences with Nebuchadnezzar's experiences. We showed why that's not good to do. You know, growing nails, so on and so forth. Don't do that. Don't go from, let's take another big one. What's another big one? Some of you have heard this before, but let's take David and Goliath for crying out loud, as my dad says. He's not here, so I can say it. Let's take David and Goliath. We don't immediately go to the story of David and Goliath and immediately apply it to you. So it looks like this. Well, David goes out and he slays Goliath. And you read the text and you think, hmm, what giants are in my life? What faith killers are in my life that I need to slay? And I used to do this, so I say this with full incrimination. I used to lead outreaches where I would set up a large Goliath. And I'd call folks to say, what's your Goliath? We're about ready to go on Daytona Beach and everybody's in here. We're <laughs> and we're going to go talk to them out there. Right. And we'd set up this huge Goliath and I'd say, 
Okay, what's your giant? The biker? Write it down. Tape it on Goliath. You know? The uh, six foot six middle linebacker for Penn State? Put it up there. What's your giant? And then we cut down the giant. Is that how the text is meant to be read? Or let's say we go to Nehemiah and you see that Nehemiah was very good at, at building and rebuilding the wall. And, and uh, I've seen books out there like Nehemiah's Leadership Principles. Immediately from Nehemiah to you. So intuitively you say, well, you read Nehemiah and intuitively you draw something out to you. And it means leadership principles. So you make a lot of money selling a book on leadership principles from Nehemiah. Or let's say you go to Joseph, and this is, this is always my favorite. We go to Joseph and we see that Joseph had a dysfunctional family. And you immediately take Joseph and start reading it to you and you say, Joseph had real problems with his family. I mean, his brothers didn't like him. It started off with he had this dream and he was kind of prideful about that dream and the brothers didn't like it. And so one day they decided it's time to get rid of Joseph. And they were going to kill him, but instead they threw him into a pit, and then they sold him to slavery. And you start thinking, man, he had, he had a, either a, a neurotic or a, a problem family. And you start thinking, well, I've got a family like that. <laughs> My brother hit me with his cast when he was eight. My brother held me out in the rain with a hammer. And do you see what happens? That's not how we're to read the Scripture. In other words, what we need to do is go from the text to the storyline of the Bible, then to you. See the difference? Don't go from the text immediately to you. Go from the text to the storyline of the Bible, then go to you. Because what's the storyline of the Bible? The storyline of the Bible is like when you build a puzzle and you lay the last piece in and you take a step back and you've got one of those 10,000-piece puzzles that you folks like that I can't stand. And everyone plays them at Christmas. And they're out there. And you've got it. You're done. And it's this huge, nice picture. That's the storyline of the Bible. And each passage is a piece in the picture. If you need another picture, it's like this. The storyline of the Bible is the soil of the Scriptures. And all meaning in the Scripture, all texts and passages in the Scripture, all interpretations in the Scripture, all teaching in the Scripture, all application in the Scripture comes out of the soil of the story. And so if you plant your interpretations or plant your applications or plant your teaching in the soil that's not of the Scripture, it will die. If you plant your meaning and your interpretation and your teaching and your applications devotionally in family worship, in discipling others, if you take your teaching, your text of the Scripture, and don't plant it in the story of the, of the scriptures, it will die. It will be lifeless, it will be powerless, and it will actually increase the souring of your soul. The story of the scriptures is the unifier of all the pieces and passages in the Bible. So what is that? 
What's the Bible story? Let's go find it. Turn to John chapter 5. John chapter 5, and I'm going to have to wrap up here. Let's look at verse 39. Now, Jesus is talking to religious leaders. These are folks that knew the Bible. These are the folks that that had lots of interpretations, lots of teaching, lots of applications from the Scripture. These are folks that knew the Bible better, and we know the Bible. These are folks that searched and studied the Scriptures daily and were professional scholars of the Bible. And Jesus says to them, he says, you search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. I mean, think about that. Friends, he's basically saying, you take the Scriptures and you devour it. You know it better, you know it better than the guys I talk to and the guys that are hanging out with me right now, these 12 folks. You search, you study, you think, and you miss it. You give sermons every day. You give lessons every night. You've got a whole nation that listens to every word you say, and you miss it. You search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that what? Bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. The storyline of the Bible is Jesus. Okay? Some of you still aren't convinced yet because you know that's like, yeah, you're supposed to say that. Let's keep going. Go down to verse 45. Do you not think that I will accuse you? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. I mean, this is their hero. Who was their hero at the time? Their hero is Moses. And he's saying, don't think I'm going to accuse you. Your hero's going to accuse you. Moses will accuse you. Let's keep reading. On whom you set your hope. If you believe Moses, you would have believed me, for he wrote of me. In other words, what Jesus is saying, if you interpreted, if you taught, if you applied Moses, the writings of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, teachers, if you would have read Moses rightly, if you would have applied him rightly, if you would have taught him rightly, you would have seen me. You would have believed in me. You would have trusted in me. The point of the storyline of the Scriptures is that when John 1 says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, that Jesus is the Word of God. Genesis to Revelation. He's the DNA. He's the storyline. He's the soil of the Scriptures. And if you take a passage and go intuitively to yourself without going to Him first, then to yourself, you search the Scriptures in vain, thinking that in them they have eternal life, but they bear witness to Me. And I give life. If Paul was here, he'd say, the storyline of the Scriptures is the power of God for your salvation. The Gospel 
unleashes heaven. The gospel gives and gives and gives life. The gospel saves and the gospel nourishes and the gospel puts back together. Jesus, the storyline is where we need to go. Then we find the proper interpretations, applications, and so on and so forth. And you're saying, well, how do we do that here? I am, I am out of time. So I will pick this up next week. But we, we do generally, when we get to Nebuchadnezzar in chapter 4, we have this whole theme of looking at the scriptures, knowing that, okay, if I'm going to go to Genesis, uh, Daniel chapter 4, don't go immediately to myself. I need to go to the storyline, and then I need to go from the storyline to me. That's what we need to do. So how do you do that in Daniel 4? We'll look at that next week. But we know right now, Jesus says so, that he's the storyline, so it needs to be done. There's hints in the immediate context that also tell you this is how you read the Bible, by going to the storyline. We'll look at those next week. What we're going to do now is we're going to end by this. A while ago, I was told about a conversation. I haven't even had a chance to talk to this person, so I will keep this person's name secret. But I was told of a conversation that happened between two friends who go to two different churches And this is a true story about one of you. I will not mention the name. Uh, A story of two friends. One friend was trying to get the other friend to go to their church. And so they took this friend to the church a couple of times and then finally expectantly was ready now to ask the question and said basically, so um, which one do you like better? Waiting for this person to see the light and then to transfer and go to this particular church. And um, this visiting friend said, do you really want to know? And I think the person gave the affirmative because the person went on to then say, after at at this church, at your church, I hear about what I'm to do. But where I go to church, I hear about what Jesus already did. This is not about boasting in a church. And this is not about a competition between churches. And this is not about you got this, we got that, so on and so forth. What this is about is about taking the story of the Scripture as being the central focal point of all teaching. And it's taking a text, going to Jesus, and then going to ourselves. So not immediately from the text to us, but immediately from the text to the power of the gospel to us. And when that happens, God unleashes heaven on you and me. Amen.